If you have a copy of God's Word, um, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 24. That's where we will begin, uh, where we will be today. Uh, my name is Buddy Lyles. It's uh, my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. And I just want to extend my greeting to you in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so glad you've, um, you've come to worship with us today. We're going to turn to probably my favorite uh, of the resurrection appearances um, that we have in the Gospels in Luke 24. It's, um, in fact, by um, some, it's, it's considered the most uh, artistic in terms of literature, like a masterpiece of how it is written. Uh, it is dripping with irony. One of the things that we'll, we'll see as we go along is we know more than the travelers on the road to Emmaus do. And there's something um, that, that adds humor, that adds uh, intrigue, that adds that like we're just on the edge of our seat going, when are they going to figure this out? And so perhaps that should be for us as well. No matter where we have come from today, um, perhaps God may say, there's something that you may not be aware of right now that I want to birth or rebirth uh, in your hearts as he tells us again as we rehearse the story, the historic event of his resurrection. So um, <clears throat> we're going to be there in just a moment. We sang at the beginning, uh, crown him with many crowns. It's one of my favorites to sing uh, at Easter, and that's what Jesus' followers, his disciples, and those also around uh, his disciples, they were ready to do with him. They were ready to crown him until he was crucified. And their hopes died with him. And with their hope buried in a cave, his followers, like you and I would be, were disillusioned. And they were on their way to disconnecting and disengaging from all they had put their hopes in and from whatever they thought they were a part of but now seem to be dead and buried. Anticipation of what will be has now soured for them. And it's become the disappointment of what won't be. But what couldn't happen has happened. Jesus rose from the dead. He got up out of the cave, which is what we taught our kids from an early age. He got up out of that cave and he is alive. And so what has been will never be the same again. And scripture records that those who came face to face with him, the resurrected Jesus, like particularly the two that we'll see today, they were never the same because they had seen a dead man walking. One of Jesus' appearances uh, hours after the resurrection is the one we're going to look at. It's in the afternoon, probably, on that first Easter. As um, his followers, two of his followers, made this troubled trek from Jerusalem, about seven miles outside of town to a place we can't even find nowadays called Emmaus. And Dr. Luke, as he does uh, throughout his gospel, he says that he went and checked with a bunch of eyewitnesses and looked at the historical records so he could compile an orderly account for a young believer named Theophilus who was a little bit shaky, a little bit disillusioned at times himself. And Luke writes his entire gospel to say, I've given you an orderly account so that you may know for certain the things you've been taught. And I pray that that's what would happen for us as well as Luke's readers, that 
wherever hopes may have felt like they're dissipating or they're dead and buried or you find yourself disillusioned, like what's the point that perhaps in reading Luke's account as Avinash prayed that the Spirit of God would do a rebuild, would do a rebirth in each of our hearts, that we would never be the same. And so Jesus appears to these disillusioned travelers. If you're there in Luke 24, begin with me in verse 13. Behold, two of them were going that very day to the village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Now, in our culture, we'd be like, that's cringe, that's strange, what are you doing? In their culture, this was pretty common, okay? But notice this. Again, this is Jesus who had risen a few hours earlier, after two days earlier, had died a gruesome death on a cross. He joins them, but, next line there, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. They just stopped. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers, our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they'd also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him, they did not see. And we're going to pause there. There's a lot in this passage that we could spend time on. It is packed with emotion and, like I said, irony, um, humor of what they don't know and we do know. And, you know, they even the very last line there. But him, we do... They did not see, and they do not see the one walking with them. Most likely, this is because the Lord is veiling his true identity from them for the moment. He has purposes in that. Jesus seems to almost be messing with them. Um, but I want you to notice one phrase in verse 21, and this will kind of be it's on the slide here. We were hoping... They were despondent. They stopped in their tracks when he said, what, you know, what are you talking about? They stopped in their tracks just in despair. Nothing made sense. Everything was scattered. Much of their life for the last couple of years, most likely, that had been so totally devoted and wholehearted and leaning in is now just obliterated. Pieces everywhere. And they can't put it back together. We were hoping... Some of you have in your translation, we had hoped, but I think it's better translated, we were hoping. We had hoped might tell us it's a one-time, well, I'd hoped, kind of that one time. No, it was, it was we were hoping. It captures the idea better because it was an ongoing hoping. 
putting more and more of the weight of their lives on him as they arrange their lives and their lifestyles around him and his message and the promise of his kingdom for months, maybe several years, depending on when they started hoping. But now they're, what marks them is we were hoping. It's all rearview mirror. We were hoping. That's the sigh of the disillusion. You know, a sigh. But that was kind of, from two days earlier, that had kind of been their constant MO. Maybe they walked for a little bit and then just, you don't even know why, you just sigh. We were hoping. That's the once upon a time story of the now disenchanted travelers on this road. Perhaps it's your story. Perhaps we're hoping describes you today. Maybe let down long ago or, or last week and you're disillusioned and you sigh. <sighs> What's the point? Christianity doesn't seem to be a faith that's living for you perhaps, but more of a facade that has let you down. Maybe you've been disillusioned through the hurt or hypocrisy of some family member some church or some Christian friend, or maybe you feel even God himself has not come through for you and he's let you down. Well, being in that place, you may be like our two disillusioned travelers and feel your only option is to take the path away from him toward disengaging from whatever this Christianity thing is. Like them, you may keep Christ and following him in the pointless and powerless category not even realizing Jesus is not very far from any of us, including you, and that his person and power cannot be contained by a cave or our categories. You see, he was with them and they didn't even know it. And surveying the cross as they were trying to do, trying to put it together as they're walking even before Jesus got there, he interrupts them. And, and it was definitely, the, the original language would tell us, it wasn't just a, a pleasant conversation. There was emotion, and there was Jewish emotion. There's, there's something amped up about Jewish emotion. I lived in a neighborhood of three Jewish synagogues. I was basically adopted as sort of a Jewish guy. I wasn't Jewish. But, boy, I saw emotion. I saw there could be heat, and then they'd love on each other. It was like, wait, I think y'all are going to kill each other. No, no, you love each other. They were having that kind of discussion, but it wasn't a polite discussion. There was emotion because of all that just got undone and unraveled for them. We were hoping. And so surveying the cross for them wasn't wonderful, as we sang, when I survey the wondrous cross. It wasn't wondrous. It wasn't wonderful. It was deeply puzzling. And because the pieces didn't fit, they felt confused and deflated. Pick back up with me in verse 25. So they had said, how can you not know what has happened here? Even these women had told us these things, but they didn't see him. Him they did not see. Verse 25, and he said to them, this is Jesus, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself 
in all the scriptures. The next phrase I want you to see in these three verses is, was it not necessary? They can't put it together. They think, well, we just must have missed it. And he says, was it not necessary? That's an ugly slide I made for you. Um, Back in the 90s, um, which was not the best decade, it was the 80s, but the 90s, proof that it wasn't as good as the 80s, is they had, we had these weird things, they were called magic something. They were these posters. Y'all remember these? In fact, for a while, this is how sick we were in the 90s, they had an entire store in the mall. They sold enough of these, you could have a, a storefront. And I can tell you, I never once saw what you were supposed to see. The deal, here's the deal, for those of you who are younger or older, maybe you've missed, missed this too, you go and you just stare at this graphic and it's kind of all this psychedelic looking stuff and all of a sudden maybe a horse would emerge. I'm telling you, I never once saw it. <laughs> never once, okay? Now, the new version of this for all you younger is what's on the left, the puzzle pieces. I made them puzzle pieces but I don't know if you call it a meme or a game or whatever, but on social media, it will say, can you find the cat in this picture? Hallelujah, I found the cat this week. (laughs) Because I had never seen them in this either. I'm like, you know what, I'm just gonna give up. And while I was making these puzzle pieces, the bottom one, I I cropped some, and then I was like, okay, I'm gonna zoom it in a little bit. And there was the cat. I couldn't believe it. We're not here to celebrate me finding the cat. What was Jesus doing? Well, their pieces were scattered everywhere, and he was putting it back together for them to say, you may have been looking, but you may have not been looking at all the pieces, or even, and now he's putting them together to say, I want you to see the picture. So I'm going to tell you now, actually the best representation of what Jesus did is the Truman Show, which is a movie, Jim Carrey starred in. And the subtitle of the Truman Show is The Story of a Lifetime. Fascinating. I don't know how. Now we can do it because there's software that'll do it for you. But fascinating how the the, uh, people who did the graphics for the poster of the Truman Show that you would see, you know, displayed outside Cinemark or whatever, is that picture right there. It would say the Truman Show on the top. But that is actually hundreds or thousands of tiny snapshots from the movie, all these different scenes in Truman's life that ultimately made up the life of this person. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. They can't see it because they're only looking at portions, the pieces that they like of the puzzle. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ to be this way? What was it? It wasn't that they didn't believe the prophets. I want you to, some of you have your Bibles. It is legitimate to write in your Bible. Circle, underline, star, whatever you want. All the times it says all. Jesus says, what about all the prophets? You guys believe the prophets, but what about all the prophets? What, is, what part of all did they not believe? Well, he says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? That's what they didn't put together. 
those are the pieces they left on the side of the dining room table. And they just had the puzzle like they wanted it to look, but it had portions missing, <clears throat> suffering. They were selective. We are just like them. We want to pick and choose those qualities of God, those qualities of his son Jesus that we want. In our world, our culture feeds this to us constantly so that we actually believe we're entitled to that. We'll talk about this in another series sometime, but we are losing personhood in our world, ironically, in the most personalized time ever. I can go to my phone and I can hit it and it'll have the background I want and do the things I want it to do and I can take off the things I don't, all that, right? Personalized. You go to any store now, they fall all over themselves to personalize your experience. That bleeds into how we view God and how we view life. And Jesus says, um, you, want it, you want me customized and personalized, but I won't allow it. The scriptures don't allow it. He says, was it not necessary? You left out these pieces of suffering before glory. That didn't fit their categories, but it was the must-take path of Messiah pointed to in the scriptures. I'll just give them to you references right now. Um, Isaiah 53, probably the biggest one. We, we, on Good Friday, we walked through that. Like, we did not, esteem him. He was despised and forsaken of men. We, we didn't esteem him. In fact, we thought, well, he's being smitten by God. He must not be God's because of what he's going to. This was 700 years before Jesus showed up. Isaiah is saying he's going to suffer. And we wrote him off. It says that's a loose translation of Isaiah 53. He says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his wounds you are healed. What does that require? Suffering. And ultimately, what it required is death. Because it's not actually the wounds. It's the blood from the wounds. It's actually not the blood. Don't worry, I'm not being a heretic. Leviticus tells us the blood, we have the blood because it signifies the life. It's the life given for you and for me, dying the death that should have been mine on a cruel instrument of death. So unrecognized, resurrected Jesus was putting the pieces together for Cleopas and his friend that this was always God's plan. Suffering must precede glory. It's the must-take path for Messiah, but it's also part of the must for us in terms of our response to him. This also matched what they earlier called, y'all read it, or we read it together, what the women reported, and they called nonsense. They said, that's nonsense. He says, no, no, no. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember, I spoke to you while I was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and the third day rise again. They remembered his words. But like the travelers, it's hard for us to put together the pieces of why Jesus must die on the cross We've heard it so our sins can be forgiven, but he's God, right? Like, can't he just say you're forgiven? Why did he have to die? Because, yes, we have a dilemma. Scripture not only says he had to suffer, but he had to suffer because of our need. 
Our dilemma is I need my sins forgiven, but God has a dilemma too. How do I remain just and punish sin and be merciful, rescue sinners at the same time? We only usually speak of Jesus' death on the cross as God's PDA, his public display of affection, because it's his love. But if that's all it was, well, then he could have just like sovereignly updated your social media status you know, profile. He could have just DM'd us, said, love you. But that's not what happened. Instead, he chose a cross. It was the place where God in perfect public display put together all the pieces of history, all the pieces of our lives shattered by sin and all his attributes, all in one person, all at one time in the once for all substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus in my place and in your place on the cross. We sing of this now. There's a newer song. We introduced it a few weeks, newer to us a few weeks ago, called Son of Suffering. And the line says, um, blood and tears, how can it be? That's what these men were struggling with on the road. Blood and tears, this doesn't belong with my Savior, my, my Messiah. But blood and tears, how can it be? There's a God who weeps, and there's a God who bleeds. But why did Jesus die? Jesus died because God says in the cross, I'm both merciful and just. In my grace, I've decided to let my son pay for what you did. The reason he had to die is because your sin and mine deserves death. And God says, because I'm perfectly just, I can't just let it go. Jesus had to die so that God could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Now, prior to the cross, pouring out his wrath, where he poured out his wrath, the payment due. Uh, sorry, prior to the cross, he delayed pouring out his wrath. Because of his mercy, though, he demanded payment. Somebody has to pay. Because of his justice, he decided to be our redeemer and pay the penalty. Because of it, it put on, on display his glory, including his great love and grace. So one more thing here, and then we'll move on to the end part of this section why didn't Jesus, they didn't recognize, they were prevented, mine says, some of yours says they were kept from recognizing. Why didn't Jesus go ahead and flex, say, I'm here, I'm risen, now let me, let me put the pieces together? Well, he has his reasons, and we don't know exactly why, but I, I do believe that it has something to do with, he wants to take them first to God's word, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And he knows that he won't always be visible with them, which he'll, he'll um, help us out with in the last section. But he wants their faith to be in God's word and in the God of the word who promised and delivered. And he wants to put those pieces together. Say, so remember, this is where you missed. These were the pieces go together. He had to suffer and then enter glory. And so then he will reveal himself. Well, um, there's a story of rich man that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel, rich man in, the, in Lazarus. And I think this is fascinating. Jesus uh, is telling this parable, and this rich man uh, ends up where he didn't want to end up. And he says, hey, you know, how about Lazarus be sent to my living brothers? I'm dead. How about send him to my living brothers so they can be warned? And Jesus, this sounds very cold-hearted, but Jesus' response was, well, they have Moses and the prophets. That's exactly what he walked these guys through. They've got their Bibles to warn them. 
And the man protested to Jesus that a warning from one who had risen from the grave would be more forceful and more convincing. To that, Jesus said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if you're not receptive to God and his word already, me showing up and doing miracles, the Pharisees, they saw lots of miracles. They did not believe. They rejected. And so he knows that, that those who reject the word of God will not be convinced, even if he does miraculous works. Well, let's jump back in verse 24 to 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther, Jesus himself. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he reclined at the table with them, now they're having a meal, he took bread and blessed it. Now, just to pause really quick, that's what you do as the host. So, again, for us, a little bit strange, but probably not for them. Normally, yes, you being the host, you would have done this. But I think because... They were so grateful for his teaching, and they could say, there's something special about you. We can't put our finger on it. How about you give the blessing? Okay. So uh, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and breaking it, and he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Poof. Now Jesus allows them to see. He is risen, but then Jesus also vanishes. I think this is instructive for us because once they're reassured or assured of his resurrection to show that he and his power are with them, whether he's visible or not. And I think that is instructive for us. He's preparing them for when he's going to work through them but not be visible to them. See the book of Acts. That's important for us as well. Shocked and awed that they've just been face-to-face with the resurrected Jesus. Now they will never be the same. So what are they going to do? Verse 33. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them saying, this is the eleven saying to them, The Lord's really risen has appeared to Simon, who is Peter. And then the two began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Here's my last phrase for us. Were not our hearts burning? Jesus put the scriptures together for them so they could see him in the scriptures as promised. Suffering then glory would be part of Messiah. And now that they have that put together, he says, now I'm going to reassure you like you will never have been reassured. And he allows them, he's now unveiled, and they see him, and then he vanishes. And then they are just stirred. Their heart, he says, were were our hearts not burning? This is him. He is really risen. And they run to the 11. I don't know how long it took them to get seven miles. They probably, a little extra pep getting there. And as they got there, there were already stories being shared about Peter and others who had already seen him as well. And then we're not going to look at it today, but then Jesus shows up in their midst and shocks them again. And he gives them tangible and textual evidence in that next scene by showing them his hands, his feet, 
the scars, and then saying, do you have anything to eat? And he eats fish to say, this isn't, I'm not a ghost in a costume. I'm not a figment of your imagination. I am bodily resurrected. And these men say, our our hearts were burning. Remember, up to this point, their story, you might describe it this way. We were hoping, hoping, breathed life into our days and purpose into our steps back then. When Jesus, our hope, was with us, that hope fueled us with energy and emotion. We were fully invested, fully engaged, but then our hope was crushed, and it became a we were hoping. Our were size of what once was, but then we found ourselves dis- distancing and disengaging. Then we heard about the women, and we said that was nonsense. This is just, imagine them telling their story to us and to the disciples as they ran to them. Notice this, going back to the story on the road. On the road, Jesus is kind to them in their confusion, their despair, and even their distancing. He goes to them. He initiates with them to draw them out. Yes, he does rebuke them, but it's a gentle rebuke. And it's a reassuring, not by first revealing himself, but by taking them to God's word. So their faith would be in God and his word and not their experience. And the Lord enables them then to recognize him in the breaking of bread. Now it all comes together, God's word, God's work. And Jesus takes them, you can show the next slide. Jesus takes them from nonsense to total sense. Jesus takes them from buddy looking at the magic poster. I got nothing. Or us with where we thought the pieces of our life were kind of fitting together and then that thing that so marks you, so put a divot in your soul, pulled the rug out from underneath you for a stretch of years, maybe you're still there and you are still in that we're hoping category. He takes them from what they call nonsense to total sense and he fit it together and he says, he is him, Jesus is the one who was promised and the one who suffered and died and rose again. He is him, the promised Messiah, spoken of in all the scriptures. Tim Keller says this, the resurrection paired with the, oh, go back, paired with the cross, makes the cross make sense and opens up all the scriptures to us. You you think of the movie, The Sixth Sense. You remember Bruce Willis and, you were all shocked. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it, but something happens at the end you were totally not expecting. It's a big-time twist. But if you have seen it, the thing that you are clued into at the very end puts everything back together, and you're like, i got to go back and watch it again. And as you watch it again, you see all the hints and all the clues and all the nuances and all the textures, and it makes total sense. Keller is saying here, the cross... Nonsense. Didn't fit their categories, doesn't fit ours. But the resurrection is God's receipt to say, when Jesus says it is finished and I died in your place for your sins, the check cleared and God approves. The next slide, Keller also says this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? 
That is your invitation today. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, ignore him. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And then Jesus takes them not only from nonsense to total sense, and he invites us to go with him from heart sick to heartburn the good kind. Because they are never the same, because they've seen and believed Jesus Christ is risen. So what? Well, the resurrection of Jesus is in all caps and bold to you and to me that our lives matter. And they can be and they should be never the same. Jesus died on the cross to save you and me from our sins but he rose from the dead to save us two lives, two living that should not be the same old, same old, but never the same. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, is it because you're disillusioned? Just disheartened? I mean, there's been so much the last several years just kind of, right, we're all just in a funk. And that may be you, and you don't know Jesus I don't blame you, especially if it's because when you look at Christians, you don't see much distinctive about the way we live. You might even say, I, I like Jesus, but I'm not so sure about his church. Well, don't allow us to be the reason you reject the one who is your only hope. Because disillusioned or not, the Bible says, not only was it necessary that Jesus suffer, it is necessary for someone to pay for your sin and mine. And the payment has to be your life or Jesus's life in your place. Those are the only two alternatives. But it also is necessary for you to trust him and his payment on that cross for your sin. The empty tomb and the bodily resurrection of Jesus are God's receipt to you and me that the payment was sufficient. Though it cost him his life, his offer of forgiveness for your sins and eternal life is a free gift and all you have to do is take it. Trust him today. And if you look around you, there may be several, I, I believe there are several around you who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, but you may be also not knowing that you're looking at the recovering disillusioned who also perhaps today need to be recovered from our recent disillusionment. And we can tell you that our lives, what they were like before Jesus Christ, but how he's continuing to change us. And some of us might even around you might be brave enough to share our struggles or doubts. And a very few of us would have the courage in Christ to let you know us warts and all. That way the grace of Christ can be seen. And his invitation and ours to you today is to know his grace and mercy in your life. The good news is the essence of Christianity is not to behave not to get your life together, not to put it all together where it looks like a perfect picture. You can't. The essence of Christianity is not behave, but behold and believe. John six forty on the screen. For this is the will of my Father. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And then in the story of Lazarus, John 11, the next slide. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This is the question. Do you believe this, and do you believe in him? 
For us as believers, these two and the 11 others who saw Jesus and went out, um, they went out never the same. And they boldly proclaimed Jesus died and rose again, and they didn't care what it cost them. In fact, the last slide there, in Acts 4, John, Peter and John are thrown in the slammer, and they're threatened, and they said, hey, you do whatever you want, but we cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. He explained to them so they knew how suffering and glory went together. He showed himself to them multiple times risen, and he ascended, and he said, you're going to be my witnesses now. And even though I'm not visible, all those other things, all those other times I appeared to you and then disappeared was to reassure you, though you may not see me, I am with you. And that would be the message to you and to me as believers. If you're in a we were hoping kind of category right now, let this, and you're disengaging, let this be your re-engaging day. And imagine the risen Jesus saying, I'm ready today to begin writing a new chapter with fresh ink in your life. What would he write? What could he write if you truly would re-engage with him today? We marvel at what Christ has done, that he loves us. And we ask you, Lord, now to turn our sighing into singing and to service and a bold confidence, not in ourselves, but in the one who not only died in our place, but rose again so that we might walk in a newness of life. I pray that would be the testimony and story of every single one of us today, that Jesus Christ is risen, Christ alone is Lord, and he is my Lord and my God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we're going to close in a way that's appropriate, the two were rejoicing with hearts burning. The disciples in the next scene were rejoicing because they had been repurposed. And that's our opportunity now is to raise what they'll say in the song, a thousand hallelujahs to the one who is worthy of our all.